Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Um, it was really flat, and I introduced her to paragliding. I remember we tried to, we 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 were kiting. We would we would kite there with the hope that a dusty would come and just pick us up off the ground, but it never happened. I remember reading about there was somebody, uh, Jockey Sanderson happened that he did that once, took off from, right. and the dusties were so strong that we thought it might happen, but it never did. Anyway, we eventually figured out where you could fly in Zimbabwe, and we went uh, we went to a competition there, and you were there. Yeah, that was the night. And introducing himself here is the great Dr. Professor Tony Pat. Thanks. He's a great start to the podcast, actually. Uh, Jockey Sanderson. I don't know. I wonder if Jockey actually took off purposefully or involuntarily. Apparently. It was involuntarily, yeah. But he wrote he got a good flight out of it, yeah. So go, going back to the very beginning of the story, Tony Pat is an American. He's living in Switzerland right now, and he is a master at renewable energies. That's what you've been doing for the longest time been into that you've been digging deeper into it you talk to governments you are a hell of a consultant um you're not just a a guy who's just blowing some smoke in the air you're doing something really really proper started flying in 96 as you correctly said met in zimbabwe the first time we met in zimbabwe was in 1998 i think and the next time maybe a year or two later at the full eclipse of the sun competition in 1998 or 99 that's right so welcome on the podcast thanks very much for taking the time and uh, you're going to tell us all about renewable energy, toys of the future, how battery, battery revolutions have happened. I'm super curious. Entertain us. So it's really great to be here. It's, it's been so long since I've seen you even. I think a few years back in Cape Town, we went kite surfing together. I was there down in Cape Town for, um, for a conference on, on solar energy. And, and for about the last 15 years, I've been doing a lot of research on on what the future is going to look like when we're not using fossil fuel. Because the background for it all is, if, if we want to really save the planet that we know and the kind of climate that we know, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. And we have to do so within our lifetimes. We have to do so by about 2040 or 2050. We have to go completely CO2 neutral. For a long time, we just didn't know how, but now we do. It's changes to agriculture, but the part that I really worry about is changing energy in the energy system. It just it means we have to go to 100% renewable energy, stopping the use of coal, natural gas, and oil. And the exciting thing, the more that we've done, the more we've learned, and the more possibilities are, are really opening up for how this is going to happen and how it can happen and how it can happen in ways that mean we don't need to stop driving places, we don't need to stop flying places. We get to enjoy the kind of lifestyle that I think you and I really like like to be able to enjoy of going around and exploring. Tony, and you've always maintained to me since as long as we know each other, you know, we've have to change now. We're at the tipping point. We're at the environmental question is one that everybody knows about. We all know we absolutely shake on this planet. How far are we in trouble? Yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> we've changed the planet and, and for the bad. We're going to be in, in an awful lot more trouble if we don't really starting now make the transition into renewable energy and stopping CO2 emissions from fossil fuel. But the good news is we've been doing a lot. 
you know, 20 years ago, when, when I started working on this, solar energy was ridiculously expensive. You know, it was something that you could have on a, on a pocket calculator and, and make the calculator run. It was something that they, they developed it. They invented it for the space program. You could have it up in satellites and they could power a satellite. But it was nowhere near being something that you could really use to power a society. And more or less the same with windmills. They broke down all the time and all of these things were ridiculously expensive. And what we've done in the last 20 years is we've made them cheap and we've made them reliable. And we figured out how to integrate them together with electricity storage and also use them to create fuels, all sorts of stuff, which means that they can actually power our society. And that's something they couldn't do 20 years ago. The, the good news is they've been, they've been getting cheaper and they've been getting cheaper because they've been growing. So I think last year, for example, 75% of the new investment globally in the energy system was into renewables. It wasn't into fossil fuels. It was into renewables. So they're growing incredibly fast. But the fact is they're growing on a tiny little base. So, so even if renewables have been growing 20% a year, which they have, they still haven't been able to until recently to keep up with the growth in our overall energy demand. So, but I'm convinced that's about to change. If you just keep up the trend of the growth that they've been having, right about now we're starting to use less fossil fuels because of the renewables taking their place. It looked in, in fact, 2019 seems to be the first year that happened. 2020, well, everything's crazy in 2020 because people aren't flying places or not driving around. The whole energy use, the oil markets have just plummeted. It's all crazy. But, um, but we're really right at the cusp now of a major transition over to renewables for all of our energy, all of our energy needs. And the fact is we need that to happen. We need that to happen fast so that we get to 100% renewables by something like 2040. It's extremely refreshing to hear that, Tony. I own seven cars and eight motorcycles in South Africa. Don't, don't ask me. <laughs> well, I own 20 pairs of skis, so it's okay, and four paragliders. Uh, yeah, that's so, you know, the boy who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, I'll give you a, an example of somebody who has made a great impression on me, and he's the man who facilitates that I have a car in Europe. So he uh, he's in Munich, and he has a garage of cars. And he has gone completely electric. I rode his Zero RS motorcycle in Munich, unbelievably fast and bloody yeah. beautiful deadly machine beautiful drives a tesla that kind of thing so and and he's bought up some older electric cars from 1996 some peugeot some citroens and they just bomb around munich they've only got a range of about 100 kilometers but what more do you need you're doing 5ks 10ks 15ks 20ks with a car and what's wrong with an electric bicycle i looked in berlin uh, there are five companies renting the little children's scooter the little stand-ups then when you're older there are companies that rent electric motorcycles that you can do 80 kilometers an hour on specialized tracks all around Berlin. So it's like, so it's like fully happening and it's fully uh, going on there. Well, so I want to give you an example. I mean, the world is going electric and that's one of the ways that we switch to renewable energy, right? Is by going from gasoline and diesel cars because our biggest use of energy right now globally is driving around, right? And, and so we need to be driving around with electricity that's coming from renewable sources. We can't grow the biofuels that we would want to be able to drive with biofuels. So if we're going to go renewable, it has to be with electricity. And, and the fact is that um, electric cars, electric vehicles of any kind are just fantastic. 
the limiting factor has always been the batteries. And, and the reality was that until very recently, batteries just sucked, right? They, you know, we only use them for flashlights. And it, it was really the invention of these things that got us the lithium ion battery. And then, te and then people figured out, okay, we can put a whole lot of mobile phone or laptop batteries together and make, a, and make an electric car. That's what the first Tesla Roadster was. The first Tesla Roadster, um, Elon Musk um, bought a, uh, got, got to use the Lotus body and he talked to Panasonic and they glued something like 100 laptop batteries together and made this thing go. Yeah, that, that was the first that was the first Tesla Roadster. It was just a whole it was a whole pile of laptop batteries put together to make a car go. And they realized this could be the best car in the world. Of course, it was still unbelievably expensive. In the last 10 years, the price of batteries has come down like 80 percent. Their performance has shot way up. Perhaps most significantly, and a lot of people don't know this, their reliability has really gone up. So the 10 years ago, a battery in a car, no, five years ago, a battery in a car Maybe you could get 200,000 kilometers out of it. Now we're talking about a million kilometers, even 2 million kilometers from a car battery in a new Tesla. The, the, the batteries will last longer than the car itself. So we need, we need electric mobility. Um, an electric car uses about a third as much energy as a normal car. And we're definitely going in that direction. I, um, I'm working a bunch of Volkswagen right now on their marketing for their new line of electric cars, which are phenomenal cars, I have to say. I was up in their factory. The electric motor is almost 100% efficient. And when and even the, and the battery itself is like 95% efficient, whereas a diesel engine is like 25% efficient. You're losing three quarters of the energy just to heat. So with an electric vehicle, the energy is is cheap. It's the cost of the battery, right? Which is what you need for these things to really make sense. But we're there. We're there. And um, for example, Norway. Norway is the country which leads all of us with electric cars. And um, they they last year for the first time passed fifty percent of new cars being sold were electric. Already in Norway, most new cars that people are buying are electric. And um, starting in twenty twenty five, they're going to ban the sale of new. Um, gasoline and diesel cars. So starting in 2025, you can only buy electric cars in Norway. Um, Volkswagen is the, the company which is ahead of the curve up there, or they're wanting to be. Volkswagen has said they're going to stop selling anything but electric cars in Norway in 2023. So even before that deadline. So three years from now, they're going to be only selling electric cars. And they're scaling up production. Of course, all, all the car companies are doing that. It, VW of the European ones, though, is, has jumped out into the front. They're scaling up production so that soon they'll be, you know, producing most of the cars they're producing will be electric. And um, and they're fantastic cars. They're coming there. I, I got to drive one on a test track. It's the fastest car certainly I've, I've ever driven. It's fantastic for just a normal car, right? It's not It's not a sports car, but it drives like one zero to 150 kilometers per hour in a, <laughs> a couple seconds it corners amazing it's just an amazing car and it's it costs no more than the diesel of the same variety it has a range of 500 kilometers they're just fantastic cars and that's what we're seeing all across all across the world well that's a very very refreshing again for me to hear um, just today, I, uh, I woke up a few days ago going, I must do a podcast in Norway. I must do one in Norway. And uh, absolutely fantastic country where you see a Tesla as a taxi, where per capita, the country has the most electric cars per capita of any country in the world. 
but yet they're still the 10th highest oil producer in the world and the biggest oil producer in Europe. Meanwhile, you will go to Saudi or you'll go to America, your own country, as you know, it's a shocker what people are still buying as gas cars and driving down the road with these, with these diesels. I'm, I'm shocked. First, I, <laughs> I try not to say that I'm American anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> I try to say that I'm Swiss. And gradually, I think people believe me. I haven't been to the U.S. in a while, but I guess, yeah, they're, they're driving these huge things. To be honest, if those things are electric, I don't care. It's okay. It's okay. Even a large monster electric vehicle has can have an environmental footprint, which is a tiny fraction of even a small diesel car. Electric is just so much better. That, and there's no way around it. People talk about the... The, the environmental problems that come from producing batteries, and, and sure, they're there, but those are getting solved. Uh, battery production doesn't have to be dirty. What's important is that the batteries are produced with renewable energy, that the whole car is produced with renewable energy, and that the electricity that you drive the car on is coming from renewable energy. And then you've, you've closed the system. It's all renewable. There's no fossil fuels in there. And the fact is that, that 95 percent of the problem with driving a car is about the fossil fuel. There's some other stuff. You have some local air, um, you know, uh, uh, particulates which come from the wear and tear of the tires and, and so on. But 95 percent of the problem with driving is the fossil fuel. If you can get rid of that, I don't really I don't really care if these people are building and buying huge things. Of course, it's nicer for our cities if people drive smaller cars. They don't take up as much room. When they hit something, they don't destroy it quite as fast. But, um, but I don't care. The important thing is that it's electric, an electric vehicle. And the important thing is that it's also manufactured with renewable energy. That's something that Tesla and now VW are both really on. Um, others are joining as well. BMW, I think, is going in this direction. They're trying to get their entire manufacturing chains on renewable energy. So, for example, VW, I was up at their plant, I said, uh, in December. And it's, it's tied to a battery production plant, which they built in Poland, which is powered by 100% wind power. So the entire production wow. for the batteries is wind power. The production for the car in Germany is a mix of wind and solar power. You, you've got a car that, which is produced with renewable energy. Of course, there's still fossil fuel in the production chain because let's say you know, the, the lithium is coming from is coming from Australia or from or from Bolivia and it's going on some ship. Right. And ships still are are going around with heavy fuel oil. Um, that's that's one area we have to decarbonize and figure out how to put them on renewable energy, too. So there are parts of the, the, the whole production system that we cannot yet turn to renewables. We have to go in that direction. I mean, we have to think everywhere has to be only renewables, but we're going in that direction. It's a big step forward that their their production facilities now for most of the car are being produced are being fed with renewable energy. So it's 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 a good story, and I I want to emphasize it's not as much of a disaster with climate change and energy as you often hear. We actually really are moving in the right direction. We just have to keep moving and keep moving faster to to solve this problem. If I read the statistics of uh, um, how we are overpopulating the planet, I mean, one of my favorite documentaries is uh, the documentary called Home, H-O-M-E, like our house, and uh, done by the same director as Human. And Human can be found uh, in 2015, is uh, it's produced. So 
have a look at both those films. They're both bloody excellent films. And um, one uh, shocking statistic is very much how our uh, population has trebled in numbers from 1950. Like you're going in 70 years, our world's population has trebled. What? How? You know, sorry, stop, slow down. It's, this is absolutely impossible. And it is what it is. You know, We have to make a difference and we have to make a change. Yeah, it's interesting. The population issue, I think, is really interesting. When we figured out, we started figuring out about 20 or 30 years ago how you solve the population problem. And the, the way that you solve the population problem, and it's, and it's really only a problem in developing country now, countries now, is by educating girls. Because it turns out when girls get educated and want to enter the labor force, they don't want to have that many babies. They want to have one, two, maximum three kids compared to what a generation they did of, of having 10 kids or something. So we've, we, to, for all intents and purposes, except for a couple parts of the world, a couple parts of Sub-Saharan Africa and, and the Middle East, birth rates have really fallen. The thing is that it can only happen so fast, right? These things take a generation to change attitudes. And even once the attitudes change, it's we've got a whole cohort of, of girls who are getting to childbearing age. And if even of them have, even if all of them only have two babies, they're still gonna be having more babies than there are 70 and 80 year old people dying, right? Because of the, the shape of the population pyramid. And, um, the exciting thing with population is all the projections, actually, we've been, re we, we had a, a period of incredible growth starting in 1950. And then in the last 10, 20 years, that growth has been slowing down. Um, we've really started to see that growth slowing down and they've been actually revising downwards the projections. It now seems really likely that the world will see its peak population in 2050, around 2050. That means within our lifetimes. And that's, I find that phenomenal. Um, you know, in the whole history of humanity, this is gonna happen once, right? That human population will, will hit its peak and come down and we're gonna be alive for that, that thing. That, that I find really exciting. At the same time, there's no getting around the fact that yeah, there are so many people and it's made the planet a crowded planet. It's, uh, it's put a huge amount of pressure on ecosystems. That's absolutely right. Firstly, you and I have to live until 2050, and we have to do that only if we're not trying to take off the ground with whirlies, all right? So that's not <laughs> No, we have to live to 2050 because we have to see, we have to see peak population. We should have a big party actually to celebrate the peak human population. And then when it actually starts to, to come down, I think we can have a party that I think 2018 was our year of highest fossil fuel emissions. I think we've turned that corner. 2019 emissions already went down just a tick from 2018. They went down a couple of years ago, but then they went back up again. They went down during during a recession um, of the 2008 recession after that, but then they went up again. But 2019 was the first year where emissions started going down just a hair, um, even though there was a lot of economic growth. 2020, they're going to go down a whole lot, right? Um, just because because of the whole coronavirus lockdown around the world. Uh, the question, I don't think 2021 they'll recover. And then I think by 2022, really our growth in renewables is going to be outpacing our um, uh, increase in energy demand. 
And so I think 2018 will have been our peak year. So actually, we should have a little party about that. But of course, it's too soon to tell. And then we have to have a party before 2050. Hopefully, it's going to be in 2040 when uh, when we're not using any fossil fuels at all. We have to have a party for that, too. There's more renewable energy out there than we could ever use. Actually, South Africa has the land area. South Africa on its own could produce with solar energy all the whole energy the whole world uses. You know, you'd have to use about a quarter of your desert in the Kalahari Desert, and that would produce enough energy for the whole world. Of course, we're not going to do it all in South Africa. We're going to do it in, in, in South Africa and in Australia and in North America and South America, the Sahara Desert. But the, the reality is there's far more there's a thousand times more solar energy that we could use than we need. Uh, do we need to be saving energy right now? If you want to quickly run through the, just list feasible uh, renewable yep. energies in the order. Uh, the, the biggest source of renewable energy that we have by a wide margin is solar energy. Of course, solar energy is the least concentrated, just taking the sunlight, right? You have to think about renew, actually all renewable energy is at its heart solar energy except for tidal. Tidal energy is different. That's coming from the gravity of the moon, right? But just the amount of sunlight hitting the earth, that's we have a thousand times more than we could ever use, and it's becoming incredibly inexpensive. Then you have wind power. We could also generate enough energy from the wind to power the entire planet on only wind. But the, it's not a particularly wide margin. You probably wouldn't want to do that, because actually, if you were to build that many windmills, you would start to notice some changes in the weather just from the windmills slowing down the, the, the wind speeds near the surface. Really, those two should probably be 80 to 90 percent of our energy. Um, of course, in some at, at a global scale, of course, in some places, hydropower is fantastic. Hydropower, though, also has a lot of environmental impacts, um, especially small scale hydro, where you, you dam up small rivers and you, you really, for not a lot of energy gain, you, you destroy a whole aquatic ecosystem. So, you know, in some places, Norway is a fantastic country for hydro. Switzerland, where I live, is a fantastic country for hydro, in part because our mountains are very high. So in Switzerland, we get our hydropower by um, having a little bit of water fall a very big distance, right? So our hydropowers have tunnels through the mountains which go 500 or even 1,000 vertical meters and develop a huge amount of pressure from that column of water. So you don't need that much water passing through the turbines just because the water is going through with so much force. Anyway, Switzerland, we get about um, we get about 60% of our electricity from hydropower. Um, and a few other countries, Austria is about the same. So in some places, hydropower is really good. Uh, in others, we should probably not be building too much of it just because of the destruction it does for the downstream ecosystem. And then in some places, geothermal makes sense. In Iceland, absolutely. You know, the place is sitting on a volcano, right? So Iceland is fantastic for geothermal. Other places, it's possible. It's pretty expensive. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I was part of this looking at uh, geothermal for South Africa, actually. It's possible there. There are parts, I think, in the northern province where, where you can do geothermal, and they've had some tests. It ends up costing in South Africa, I think, about 10 times as much as solar power. So there's really no good reason to do it. Um, so those are really your biggies.
So discussing places like Dubai, and I'll say it quite openly and uh, without any kind of uh, remorse, um, should be having solar panels, but they have none because they have oil and they don't care and they're showing the middle finger. Do you find attitude from these Arab countries or I'm not saying specifically Arab? Well, the, the countries, most of the countries which make their living out of selling oil are, are in a bit of a trap. And um, and this has been well documented that, that the big oil and Russia is a very good example of this. Nigeria is a good example of this. It oil, the oil business breeds corruption because because you give out the contracts to the oil companies, you get corrupt politicians and they don't develop their economies in other ways. But there are exceptions. Um, and so, of course, one big exception is Norway. Um, Norway, nobody actually really knows why Norway has promoted electric cars so much when electric cars are going to be the end of oil. I, I just think it's in their psyche that they're, the Norwegians are, are real environmentalists and they're guilty about the fact that they supply so much oil to the world. But, but the, the point of the matter is the Norwegians have invested their profits from oil in order to figure out how to move beyond oil. And then I just have an interesting story. I was, um, I was three years ago, I was at a big conference in uh, the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi. One of the princes, you know, one of these guys in his, in his white robes from the royal family of Abu Dhabi started describing what they were doing for solar. And he, eat, and he referred to fossil fuels as dirty energy. And he said, we all know we have to get away from dirty energy. And I was like, wow. Wow. You know, an Arab sheik says, calls fo fossil energy dirty energy and, and, and hasn't been assassinated. That's, pretty, that's a change in mindset. Now, I don't think it's there in all the countries. You know, I think Dubai and Abu Dhabi are different. Um, Abu Dhabi is it's the home of um, the International Renewable Energy Agency. Abu Dhabi is one of these places in the desert which is building a lot of solar. And I think trying to figure out how to become more of a solar economy, seeing that the days of oil are limited. A couple others, I think Saudi Arabia is not there yet, but I, I see movement. And, um, and even in Saudi Arabia, they've built a huge amount of solar. The largest solar farm, largest concentrated solar farm that's been built was just finished um, a year ago in Morocco. It's, it's gigantic. If, it, it produces as much electricity as, as the country of Switzerland. It's, it's a huge plant. I think it covers about 20 square kilometers. So there, there are good news stories there as well. I know I'm being too good newsy. Okay, here's the bad news. The bad news is you're absolutely right. We've done a lot of damage. So where I live in Switzerland already, we see a huge amount of warming that's already taken place. This year was the worst winter on anybody's, in anybody's memory. I usually, I, I get a lot of time on the snow. I mean, the, the reason I care about climate change is because I just love snow and I love I love skiing, and I usually get 50 or 60 days the snow. And this winter, I certainly didn't. I, there was no snow below about 1,200 meters elevation. Usually, we live at 600 meters, and um, until recently, there was always snow on the ground here where we live, starting to cause damage to ecosystems. And we're not going to undo that damage. It's going to be there. But we can still hang on to the planet that we know, if we make the transition to renewables over the next 20 or 30 years. If we don't, it, it's not just a matter of, of losing some of the stuff we like, like, like winter where I live. It's, it's really, we're talking about an entirely different planet where we don't know if humanity can really survive. So what are the toys of the future then, uh, Tony? I mean, if we've got uh, paramotor 
if you've been following the development of any electric motors that make some fun stuff. Earlier today, we spoke of the Lift E-foil. Very yeah. simple, L-I-F-T, new word E-foil. It's a foil which comes out of the water. And I'm dying to get myself a, oh, I'm a dying yacht to, to sail around the world. Yeah. We're, I think we're going to have a lot of fun toys because the reality is that the move to, towards electric cars is pushing our battery technology forward fast. And an electric motor is, is easy, right? An electric motor is cheap. It's powerful. It's perfect. It's the battery, which has not been very good until recently. But the, dry, the, the movement towards electric cars has pushed battery performance way up, pushed battery prices way down, and it means we can electrify anything. <laughs> it's really fantastic. Well, with one exception, we're not going to be able to electrify a, an airplane that can take 100 passengers across an ocean, not, not at least for the next 50 years. But, but anything short of that, we can electrify. Um, I just, yeah, it's all so much fun. I remember... Last spring, um, no, it was a year ago, I, I, I really started riding those, those little scooters, electric scooters that are everywhere in the cities. I don't know if they're everywhere in South Africa, but in Europe, they're everywhere. I had to get across Paris to a, a climate conference. And uh, instead of taking the subway, I just took one of these scooters. And it was unbelievably, it was just ridiculous going through dense Paris traffic on that thing. But it was so, so much fun. And it's just everywhere. It's all it's coming together, those technologies and the fact that, you know, you, you, you rent them with your iPhones and everything. Anyway, we're going to be seeing an awful lot of fun toys. I mean, e-bikes. Yeah. E-bikes that aren't even heavier than normal bikes. I think that'll be coming. I think we're going to see a lot. And then we're going to be seeing a lot of useful electric things. too. We're starting to see the first electric tractors that farmers can really use. You know, I ski, and, and so one of the things there is the grooming equipment for the snow, and the first electric grooming machines are coming out. Um, so you don't need to be destroying the winter to be able to produce skiing on the mountainside. That's a good thing. We're, we're just seeing the electrification of, of everything, and that's a good thing. Yesterday, I completely oversaw uh, the need to ask you where you come from in these studies. You have a professorship. You've been at many universities. You've been paid by pretty decent organizations, and you've got a doctorate. Um, you've been doing this for a long time. Tell us your qualifications, why we can take you seriously. <laughs> Steph, thanks for asking. So back in 1995, I, I started two things. First, I started working on a, a doctorate in public policy at Harvard University, and second, I started paragliding. And those two things went went together really well, And and I think I told you yesterday I, I really came alive with paragliding in, in Southern Africa, first in, in Zimbabwe, then also in South Africa. And uh, I had the happy coincidence that a lot of my research was in Southern Africa as well. It was looking at how people, especially poor farmers in Southern Africa, adapt to climate change. Along the way, I finished my PhD. I became a professor first at Boston University then moved to the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria, outside Vienna. And then finally, uh, eight years ago, moved to the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH, in Zurich, where I'm professor of climate policy. Um, I've done a lot of work along the way. Some of that still in Southern Africa. I've done a fair amount of consulting for the World Bank and other international organizations, looking at... Uh, both climate change adaptation and also renewable energy development in Southern Africa. We've done a fair amount of collaborative work with the University of Stellenbosch 
and the University of Cape Town looking at um, at concentrated solar power options for South Africa. I'm also very active in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. So I was a lead author in their last assessment report, which came out in 2015. I'm currently a, a coordinating lead author, which means I lead a, a team of about 10 authors um, working on issues of climate policy for the current IPCC report, which is going to be out in um, 2022. So it's really the global body looking at, at how we solve this problem with climate change. And of course, a huge piece of that, the biggest piece of that, is the switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy and how we make that actually work, given the fact that first, people in the developing world want to continue to develop, not just in Africa, also in Asia, Latin America. And second, given the fact that people like you and me want to still have fun in life. <laughs> and how do we make that happen in a world where we have renewable energy and do not have the freedom to burn gasoline and diesel fuel? It's a, it's a challenging issue, but it's the one that my, my research and my career is devoted to. I know. I mean, uh, Boston University, Harvard University, you know, professor at uh, University in Zurich, uh, uh, you've been up to a whole lot more than uh, I realized. And uh, sorry to give you a downplay on the credit, if I may. Uh, I, we are often friends for many, many years. I mean, we've we've lived a kind of thousand adventures together, which has been absolutely great. Let's go back to paragliding and talk about some fun toys. Um, of course, the paramotor in electric is what we're all looking at at the moment. We are, of course, looking at electric winches. I have a friend who has a self winch system with a Bluetooth controller, so you literally can winch yourself up, which gives a whole new element to autonomy with paragliding, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. Last year, uh, for about 2,000 euros, I was looking at buying a used paramotor, which uh, is electric, and of course, uh, the, the props drop back with a pod harness getting into the air, only about eight minutes apparently, but come on, let's face it, two to three minutes in the air with a strong bunch of LiPo batteries is all we really need. Yeah, so, I mean, we're seeing an explosion, an explosion of toys, and it's all driven by the fact that batteries are getting faster. Sorry, batteries are getting more powerful. Uh, they can provide you current faster. They're lasting longer, and, and most of all, they're cheaper. And where is this coming from? Why are batteries getting so much better? The first thing, reason they're getting better is because of these things, iPhones and, and, and smartphones, which really gave rise to the lithium-ion battery in the first place. I mean, before that, we just didn't really use batteries for anything real, right? We didn't need good batteries. Starting a little while ago, we figured we really needed good batteries. And then, and then the technology has further jumped forward with the revolution in electric cars, which really is an electric car revolution. We are headed and we need to be headed to the point where within 10, 15 years, pretty much all the cars that the people are buying new cars are electric. And all of this translates into a huge amount of research and development in batteries. So their energy density, how much energy they can store for every kilogram of battery that you have is getting better and better. It's, it's gone up by something like a factor of three over the last 10 years. And that's good news for all these toys, right? You can put a battery in a drone. You know, drones weren't around for that long. Before that, we had to have helicopters, which were far more complicated to build, to steer, to control. A drone with four electric motors and one battery just works magnificently. And then you see it in, in things like electric surfboards that you can surf around. Of course, all the 
electric scooters that you can go around on the cities. Um, and for paragliding, of course, the electric paramotor, which I think is a fantastic option. And that's the way we need to be because we don't have the future in the future, the freedom to keep burning gasoline. At the same time, we're constrained by the laws of nature, and we just can't build yet a lithium-ion battery that stores anywhere near the amount of energy per kilogram as gasoline. You know, gasoline is the highest energy-dense fuel that we have on the planet, short of a nuclear reactor <laughs> and some short of uranium, enriched uranium. The gasoline has so much energy in it per kilogram. It's beautiful, and that's why we use so much of it. But we're, we have to move away. Of course, electric motors are really good in other ways. They're quieter. They're so much easier to start and stop and vary the speed. They accelerate and decelerate instantly. They're clean. All great reasons, but but they have this one constraint of that you can't carry as much energy around with you as you would. So for a power motor, I think if you want a power motor that'll get you up from a flat a flat landscape up into the thermals, an electric paramotor is going to do that for you. You know, it takes, how long does it take? Maybe five minutes to get up there, uh, to launch and get up to a speed. You're really settled into the thermals. Can we build an electric paramotor now that allow you, that's going to allow you to fly around for a couple hours? Probably not. Um, can we build that in 10 years? We're moving in that direction. And we're certainly moving in the direction in aviation. There's a lot of research right now in the aviation sector going in looking at electrifying or making hybrid engine airplanes um, an Israeli startup has come up with the first um, the first really good prototype which um, it, it can fly 10 passengers two pilots and 10 passengers about I think 400 kilometers purely with electricity um, and the costs of operating it are actually supposed to be, once it goes into production in, in the next year, supposed to be lower than the cost of operation of a conventional um, turboprop plane burning jet fuel. But it can only fly 400 kilometers. And with the safety regulations that we have, the fact that an airplane might put it, be put into a holding pattern, the, the, the aviation administrations are not going to let it fly a route longer than about 200 kilometers. So it's really, really limited in what you can use it for. The airplane companies, uh, Boeing, Airbus, and a lot of the companies working on the, the engines for them are, are working their hardest to try to figure out an airplane that can be electric and can fly, can fly further. I'm very skeptical that within our lifetimes, we'll see a plane that can fly across an ocean with passengers that's purely electric. Um, and so for that, then we need to be turning to other things like creating liquid fuel out of sunshine. That's also something you can do. You can there's, there are machines now which can take sunshine and basically turn air into jet fuel using sunshine. They capture CO2 out of the air, they, cap, they get water, they split the molecules, they put them back together again, and you get liquid jet fuel. The problem is it's a horribly inefficient process. You need about three times more energy than you would to just get the electricity and fly with the battery. But that's how you overcome these limitations. And one funny thing that you told me, and I'd just like to repeat it, is that the environmentalists don't seem to like this trend because they've got it in their heads that there should be no cars. But it's not a case of them not having cars that are electric as opposed to fossil fuels, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was doing a bunch of work with um, the organizers of the Formula E 
uh, races. I don't know if you know that. It's like Formula One, but it's with electric cars. And they have electric car races like the Formula One races around the world. They had one in Zurich, and um, I was brought on board to do some, some marketing with them. Uh, the biggest opponents to that race, and in fact, the biggest opponents to steps to promote electric mobility in, in the city of Zurich were the Green Party, uh, because their position was, you know, cars shouldn't be part of the solution. Cars are really the problem. And, and you have to give them some credit for that, because cars cause a problem, not just on the environment with the fuel they use. They also make our cities um, less nice places to live. They, they're, they're noisy, they're dangerous, all sorts of things. So if you have an image of, of a world that's sustainable because we're living in fundamentally different ways, we're not driving cars, but we're taking public transportation and walking and bicycling for all our needs, then you're going to say, ah, come on, this, this electrification isn't the way forward. It's, it's only a way to perpetuate these ridiculous lifestyles which need to change anyway. You have these disagreements. And of course, the fun of all this is trying to figure out solutions that everybody can live with, because we have to all live with it. We all have to come together. Um, I, I'm convinced we can find those. But, but it, it takes work, and it's what a lot of the conflicts right now about, about the energy transition are about. Which vision of a carbon-neutral future do we want to go down? While you were speaking, I'm thinking of this time of corona, this time of lockdown in South Africa, five weeks. All a whole big question about, uh, I was speaking to somebody actually in Switzerland this morning on a, um, a Skype call. Business can be done differently. Our lifestyles can be done differently. Why have I created these podcasts? What is that all about? So we can live our lives. It's just change is extremely difficult for human beings to accept. Instead of saying, hey, Tony, I'm coming over to your place. Get into my gas guzzler, drive over from New York to Boston and say, okay, uh, it's only a three hour trip. Uh, I'll do a road trip and enjoy the scenery. We can also have sounds of nature, which the Japanese have been having on 500 different radio stations when I was there. 25 years ago and you could choose the sound of babbling brook or waterfall or whatever and we can surround i just want to bring us onto another little theme tony and that's about the human drone because a friend of mine who paraglides is actually one of the major shareholders in the second biggest company which are now vying for the uh, race for the human drone so you will know the company, it's called Volocopter. They have just gotten a, um, an extra injection. Uh, it is public, so I can say it. So they're worth about 80 million US dollars right now. And uh, they've just uh, outdone by their main competitor, who is in at about 600 million US dollars um, of capital investment and investors who are vying for the race for the human drone. The only people I've talked with are the leaders of a Munich-based company, Lilium, which is also doing this and they're they're developing an electric essentially an electric drone that can carry people at, in a taxi kind of service um and and their their prototype they're looking at a range of of a couple hundred kilometers and so it can get you a lot of short hops um it doesn't need its own pilot the drones are incredibly stable compared to to other kinds of aircraft so it could be a, a self-driving taxi air taxi you know, I'm of two minds of this, and I think a lot of people are of a couple minds of this. You know, on the one hand, it's great if we can fly around and we don't need, we get traffic off of the roads and up into the skies, um, and we do so in a way that's clean and quiet, and that's all fantastic. On the other hand, 
you know, I'm looking up at the sky right now over Switzerland, which on a normal day is covered in contrails. And since the coronavirus